to begin with this evening as we continue our topical series here on what Presbyterians believe on those uh, topics covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith. We come to the doctrine of the church this evening. There's a lot more than can be said simply in this short space, but again I'm going to stick with just a, a very quick survey of what the Westminster Confession has to say to us as it summarizes Scripture's teachings, the basic teachings about the church. I'm going to start by reading this evening's Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. This is God's holy word as he gave the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Colossae in the Roman province of Asia. So this would be in western Turkey to us now. This is God's holy word as... Paul was infallibly inspired and infallibly recorded the word of God. Again, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile, reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, 
which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This sends the reading of God's holy word for us this time, though we'll be looking to other scriptures here in the sermon. But let's briefly pray. Lord, again, we do pray that you would grant now that the reading of your word, its preaching, and its hearing would be blessed so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight to your glory as well as to the upbuilding of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. In our study here of the basics of what Presbyterians believe as as we have uh, stated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come to the topic this evening, the chapter of the confession that's entitled The Church or Of the Church. What is the church? Who belongs in it? That is, of, of whom does it consist? And you'll notice I'll say it consists of whom, of people. That presumes that we know that the church is not a building. It's not bricks and mortar. It's not sticks and stones. In fact, it's, it's more appropriate to call the building that we're in the church building or the church's building rather than to think of it as the church. Though we might, for matters of convenience, sometimes call it that. But the church is actually the people, as we'll get into here in a bit. So of whom, though, does that church consist? And it's helpful to think of how the, the Puritans used to speak of the church. When worship takes place, they would not say the people went to church so often as they would say that the church gathered. Because the people are the church and the church is gathering. But what's its purpose? How do we recognize a true church, a true congregation, or a true denomination. Can a true church degenerate into a false church? Who is the head of the church? These are the kinds of questions that are actually answered in the scriptures, of course, but those answers are brought together in this chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So first, let's answer the question, what is the church? The Greek word from which we get our English word church, or if you're Scottish, kirk, um, which sounds a little bit more like the original Greek word, uh, the Greek word is kuriake, and they're related words. These are things that, it, they're words that mean that which pertains to or that which belongs to the Lord. The root of it is kurios, Lord. We use it to translate certain terms that we find in the New Testament. Ecclesia is the main one, which ecclesia is a word for an assembly. It's like a synagogue is actually an assembly or a coming together to learn. And ecclesia is an assembly. Literally, it comes from the verb that means to call. So it refers to those who are called out. Those who are called out. Called out ones. especially used for a local congregation in the New Testament. But we also find words in the New Testament. Ecclesia can be used for the universal church. But we also see terms in the New Testament like body of Christ, bride of Christ, the elect, and so on. And we often, especially in theological documents, 
uh, use the term church to translate all of those. Here's what the confession says about what the church is. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one, under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So there we see several things about the church. The word Catholic might make many Protestants balk. You know, it's, it's a true thing. This is a true statement to say that you, Reformed Presbyterian, or a true believing Baptist, or whoever, whatever Christian we're talking to, whatever Protestant we might be talking to, are a Catholic. <clears throat> but we would say that with a small c. The word Catholic simply means universal or general. And we confess, along with the ancient church fathers, that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the church is one, it's holy, it's set apart from the world, it's Catholic, it's worldwide, we'll get to that here in a second. And it's apostolic, it's founded on the apostles. So we're not talking about a specific earthly organization that may call itself Catholic. Although we should note that by claiming to be the Catholic Church, the Roman Church is claiming to be the only true church. But in the Confession, we see these words used. Confession is here talking about the entire church of Jesus Christ. And we note several things about it. First, it's Catholic. It's universal. We'll get into a little bit more about that here in a bit as well. It's, that it, that is, it's, it is not confined either to one nation in terms of the visible church. And it's not confined to any particular denomination in terms of the invisible church either. But in addition to being Catholic, we note, number one, it's invisible. That is, it can't be totally seen on earth. There is no single organization on earth that can claim to be the whole, capital C, church. Plus, of course, many of the members of the universal church are no longer on earth. And if it includes all of God's elect, as the confession there says, there are many yet to come. No doubt who will be members of God's true church. There are many who are in heaven. There are many yet to come. And the, the invisible church consists of all who in all, all times and places have ever or will ever believe in Jesus Christ unto salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us, of course, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And so lots of us are at home with the Lord already. They're still part of the Catholic church church, the universal church. And so that, that church can't be seen. It's invisible. You can't look at a particular congregation and tell necessarily who the true believers are, particularly if you're not seeing their actions and what is flowing from their faith. You can't just visit a church, a congregation you've never been to before and say, well, that person's really in the invisible church and that person isn't. Even if somebody by their fruits is showing that they don't really belong to the invisible church, that doesn't mean that they won't repent and show those fruits later. That's why it's invisible. You can't see it. Secondly, we see that 
the church consists of God's chosen, his elect people, in the past, present, and future. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So God has a people that he has chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. So we see that the, the true church consists of those elect people. A third thing that the confession points out from Scripture here is that Christ is the head of that church. Colossians 1.18, we read earlier this evening, that he is the head of the body, the church. And we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. A fourth thing the confession notes is that the church is Christ's bride. Revelation 19, 6 through 8, and Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 tell us those very things. Revelation 19, 6 through 8 says this, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Christ has a bride. The church is that bride. We see in Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. We read this previously or recently. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her (coughs) with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So there, there's imagery also of the body of Christ, but also of the union of husband and wife. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, Paul says. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We noted last time that the relationship of Christ to the church is pictured in marriage. This is a great mystery, verse 32, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And we see already the church is the body of Christ, both in that passage and in Colossians 1.18, that Christ is the head of the body. He's not a bodiless head, and we are not a headless body. Christ is the head, we are the body. As Ephesians 4 1 through 16 also shows it is to be the fullness of his image as he unites all things in heaven and on earth 
Ephesians 1.10 tells us that. By making a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21 tells us. So Ephesians 4.1-16 through 16 tells us, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective work, working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The church is supposed to be the fullness of the image of Christ. Now this universal, invisible church does have a visible portion on earth. And so we might ask then, of whom does that visible church consist? Of whom does the visible aspect of the church consist? Obviously the members of the invisible church who are still on earth, the elect on earth. But there's also a visible church on earth made up of the elect and other visible members. So the confession tells us the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, together with their children, and as the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So it's not confined to any one country or any single denomination. Psalm 2.8, the Father promises an inheritance to the Son from all the nations. We can't tell what is in another person's heart, but the visible church is made up of everyone who professes the true religion. We don't know whether they truly believe it or not, so we just have to, to treat as the visible church everyone who professes faith in Christ unless we see by their fruits that they need to come under discipline to the point of needing to be expelled and they never come back. In that, that case, then we know that they weren't really believers. Those who apostatize, like the Apostle John says, those who go out from us because they never were really of us. But everyone who professes true faith, the worship of Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone, is in the visible church. 
1 Corinthians 1, 2, we, we were called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The visible church also includes the children of those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ, as we see in 1 Corinthians 7.14, for example, which says in God, excuse me, let me read the right chapter, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So a child of a believer is considered holy, not necessarily changed in heart or saved, but set apart somehow from the rest of the world. The church also is the kingdom of Christ on earth. Isaiah 9-7 says Christ will sit on the throne of David and there will be no end to the increase of his government. Colossians 1-13, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, or the power of darkness as it is in the New King James Version, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Christ the church is the house and family of God, as Ephesians 2.19 and 3.15 indicate. It's God's ordained means of bringing his elect to salvation. In Scripture, it is always through the preaching of the word that people come to faith, and then they join themselves to a visible congregation. So that's why the confession says, outside of this, we don't know of any ordinary means. God can do extraordinary things, but ordinarily... His means of bringing people to faith is through the instrumentation of the visible church on earth. Fulfilling its function of the Great Commission. So that brings us to answer the question, what is the purpose of the church then? We know something of what the church is. Well, what's its purpose? The Confession says, unto this Catholic visible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. So the church has the ministry, the service, that is, the oracles, that is, the the speaking forth of God's word. So we've got God's word and the ordinances of God. So the church is to preach the word of God, to perform his ministries, witness the gospel, nurture the faith of those who respond. So often when people think of the Great Commission, they think of just the first half of it. But Jesus says in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore, he says to his disciples, because all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So we go forth, we preach the gospel to all the nations. People respond in faith and they are baptized. If they hadn't been before perfectly baptized, but here we go, or correctly baptized, that is. Then we, we baptize them. But, of course, making disciples means more than just preaching the gospel, hearing people confess faith, and baptizing them. It means teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So nurturing them in the faith after their first profession. That gives us a clue as to how we recognize a true church. 
the purpose of the church, its main purpose, is to make disciples. So we preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it, whether that's the children being raised up in the church or those outside of the church's walls, as it were. We preach the gospel to them, and then we nurture them in the faith when they respond. That's making disciples. But then we also get a clue as to how we recognize a true church from what that says. They're the visible branch of the invisible universal church. As the confession says, this Catholic church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure. According to the doctrine of the gospel, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. No church on earth is perfectly pure. We see that in the New Testament, don't we? That if the first century church were the perfect example of how the church ought to be, we wouldn't have a lot of the letters of the apostles because they were correcting problems. No church on earth is perfectly pure, but a local congregation or a denomination is a true church or a true branch of the, the one church if it preaches and embraces the authentic gospel, rightly administers the sacraments, practices biblical discipline, and strives to worship biblically. It's basically what the confession is saying there. Acts 2, verses 41 and 42, those who received the gospel were baptized, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that is, to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer, to praying together. If a church is missing biblical preaching, biblical administration of the sacraments, biblical discipline, it's not a true church. Whatever the sign over the door or out front might say. That means a church can degenerate so much that it is no longer a true church. And the confession speaks of that, saying, The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. That's good for us to stop and think about that. However pure we might think our own church is, we know that there's got to be some mixture and error here because we are fallible. We know we're not perfect. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become apparently no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. So even the purest churches under heaven at least have the propensity, the possibility of falling into error. False churches, synagogues of Satan, as Revelation 2.9 puts it, that is Jesus puts it in Revelation 2.9, they do exist on earth. And many of them didn't just start off as cults that were rejecting the true gospel, but many of them used to be true branches of Christ's church. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, in a true church there will be tares. There's going to be weeds, as it were, among the wheat. Sometimes, however, the tares seem to take over a particular corner of the field. So churches can cease to be churches, despite, as I said, whatever the sign over the door might happen to say. The world, because of the common 
use of the word church, likes to use the word church for lots of things. I think it's rather silly that there's such a thing, for example, as the church of Scientology. Because as we noted before, the, the word church actually comes from the word belonging to the Lord in Greek. What Lord does Scientology claim to belong to? They don't even believe there's a God. You don't have to believe there is a God to be a Scientologist. Or, for example, for that matter, a Unitarian today. It's a funny thing because the Unitarian term means that they're rejecting the notion of a Trinitarian God. But you don't even have to believe in any God to be a Unitarian. I saw a video recently about the... I think it was the Reformed Church of Canada that doesn't... I hope I've got that right. I don't want to be slandering a church. Um, there is a denomination in Canada that does not require that its clergy believe in God. What Lord does that belong to? It's a it's a oxymoron to call that organization a church. Even the Church of Satan is more has the has a a claim to the word church more than such an organization because they're claiming Satan is their Lord, right? But Christ will cause his true church to prevail in the end. Matthew 16, 18, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the true church will survive even though there are many synagogues of Satan in the world. We've already seen that Christ is the head of the church and so... In answering that question, we conclude that only a false or terribly corrupt church could name anyone else to be its head. Interestingly, the, the updated confession, which uh, many Presbyterian denominations use, we don't change the words of the confession in our denomination. We have a testimony that goes alongside of it. But uh, even the updated confession, as many Presbyterians have it, says this, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only head of the church, and the claim of any man to be the vicar of Christ and head of the church is without warrant, in fact or in scripture, even anti-Christian, a usurpation dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Our testimony says that there will be many antichrists, and there will be finally one that Christ will return and destroy. The ultimate antichrist. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4 speaks of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Anyone who claims to be the head of the church, through whom Christ rules on earth, remember the church is the temple of the living God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. So anyone claiming to be the head of the church is putting himself in a position that rightly belongs to Christ, the God-man. During the 2012 presidential election, I can't believe that's 11 years ago now, uh, during the primaries, I was in Iowa at the time, and of course we uh, had the pride of the Iowa caucuses taking place very early in primary season. You know, and I remember someone in that that context saying that he couldn't support a particular candidate because her church taught that the Pope is Antichrist. And that's a position that might make some sense unless you want to vote for 
a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Mennonite or an Episcopalian or an Anglican, a Presbyterian or most other Reformed churches, Congregationalist, pretty much any Protestant church. Because all of those denominations at some point in their history and in their foundational documents have a statement declaring the Pope to be Antichrist. <laughs> this is what the 1647 Confession, to which we adhere, still says, though as I noted, our testimony does say alongside of that, we recognize from Scripture that many Antichrists will come. But the 1647 Confession says, There is no other head of the Church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin, and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. My favorite statement from a theologian on this is this, Any, anyone claiming to be vicar of Christ and head of the church on earth, this is sort of a paraphrase, will be that man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. That was reportedly said by Pope Gregory I. Two popes later, and every pope since has made the claim to be the universal bishop, the head of the church on earth, the vicar of Christ. That is the one who stands in the place of Christ. For anyone, whether it's a pope or a king, like King Henry VIII claiming to be the head of the church in England, whoever, to claim to be head of the church is to push Christ out of his rightful place. There can be no head of the church but Christ. So the church is made up of the elect in all times and places. It is the body and the bride of Christ. It is his kingdom and his family. It preaches his word. It administers his sacraments. It practices his discipline. It worships him. The more biblically it does those things, the purer it is. When it ceases to do them, it is no church at all, no matter whatever it calls itself. Christ alone is the head of the church. If we adhere to these things, then we know that we also are a true branch of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for calling us to be your church, to be the body and bride of Christ, his kingdom, his family. We pray that you would keep us faithful to preach his word, to perform his ordinances, to practice his discipline and worship him rightly. For we pray in his name, who alone is king and head of the church, and we ask that we would be ever members of that pure church. In Jesus' name, amen.